0: Good to see you all this morning. You can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, and we will finish looking this morning at the fall of mankind, verses 1 through 8. Let's begin by reading our passage together this morning, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy and infallible word. You may be seated. This morning we are going to finish what we started last week. Last week we looked at the conversation between the serpent and Eve in the garden and we looked at a few strategic moves that Satan made as he was tempting Eve and we sought to apply those things to ourselves in a few different ways so that we would not be ignorant of Satan's schemes in our own lives. Today, as we move from that conversation between the serpent and the woman in the first five verses and focus on verses 6 through 8, we will see mankind trusting in their own wisdom, trusting in their own understanding going from a state of innocence into a state of sin and misery. We're going to do that this morning in two points. Our first point will be the fall, where we will look at the failure and the fall of Adam and Eve in verse 6, and then our second point will be the reaction, where we will look at the initial consequences of the fall in verses 7 and 8. Before we seek to do this, let us go to the Lord in prayer together, asking him for his help. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we have gathered together this morning desiring to glorify your name, knowing that you are glorifying it in us and through us, that you are doing this throughout the world. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning as we look at your word to learn, to grow, to apply it to our own lives, Father, so that we would not just be hearers of it, but that we would be doers. Father, help me to not just be a preacher of your word, but to be a doer of it. Father, we ask for these things not only for ourselves, but for our sister churches. This week, we lift up to you our brothers and sisters at Bible Baptist Church in Galway, New York, and our brothers and sisters at Covenant Bible Church in Taylorsville, North Carolina. Father, we ask that you would be with them, that you would help them this morning, that you would receive their songs of thanksgiving and praise as they offer them up to you as we have in the name of your son, trusting in his righteousness, that you would receive them, as we offer them to you in his name, we ask, Father, that you would do the same with our brothers and sisters. Father, we also lift up our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are persecuted, but this morning we especially lift up our brothers and sisters who live in parts of Mexico where different factions, different cartels persecute and even murder them because of their preaching of your gospel. They truthfully speak of the condemning wrath that comes with sin, the hope that is found in your Son. Father, we ask that you would give to them your providential care and protection, that you would guide their steps and their conversations, that you would give their proclamation of your gospel favor, and that you would produce fruit unto salvation through it. Father, we turn our attention now to the word that you have seen fit to go out among us this morning here in Genesis chapter 3. Father, we know that it will not return to you void, even those among us who are distracted, or ignore it. Father, we know that you are accomplishing your good purposes in and through it. And so we trust in the work of your Spirit now, asking and pleading that as you send it forth and as you accomplish your purposes, that you would be pleased to do so in ways of mercy and grace among us, and not in ways of judgment and wrath. Father, we plead with you to be kind to us, to remember that we are but dust, that we are fickle, and that our life is fleeting, and that we are not infinite in our knowledge or in our memories, but we only remember those things that are seemingly right in front of us immediately, and perhaps before some of us this morning, the fear of you is not before our eyes. Father, we ask that you would kindly forgive us of that and that you would put it before our eyes, that we might purpose in our own hearts to live for you in this world in light of the eternity that is to come. For the unbelievers among us this morning, Father, we ask that they would hear these words concerning the fall of mankind, they would see the root of all the sin that is in their lives that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see the miserable condition that they are in outside of your son that in your mercy and your grace you would take out their heart of stone give them a heart of flesh to believe and obey the gospel of our lord Jesus Christ Please do this work among us, Father. We hope in you. We trust in you. We know that if you do not do it, we labor in vain. And so we come to you asking these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I read a story that was from a few years back about two men who were on trial in California for armed robbery. And during the trial, the prosecutor was asking questions of an eyewitness who was at the scene of the crime. And the courtroom was silent as he was going through his questions. He began asking the eyewitness, he said, were you at the scene when the robbery took place? The eyewitness responded to him, yes. And you saw the, a vehicle leaving the scene at a high rate of speed? Yes. And did you observe the occupants of that vehicle? Yes, said the eyewitness, two men. The prosecutor, having having built up his questions to this point, raised his voice and thundered his final question, and are those two men present in the courtroom today? The entire courtroom turned and looked at the two defendants who had sealed their fate because they raised their hands. Well, that is a funny story, and we can praise God that part of his work of restraining evil in the world is that criminals are very rarely bright. But while this is a funny story, its connection that it has to our passage today is not funny at all. See, what happened in the courtroom was that truth bubbled up inside of these two men. While they weren't paying attention, it came out. They knew that they were Guilty, but they were trying to hide it and get away with it in the courtroom, but in the end, they could not. This morning, as we look at our passage, we are going to see Adam and Eve doing the same type of thing. After they disobey God, we will see that the first thing that they do in their sin and guilt is the fruitless activity of trying to cover up their nakedness and hide themselves from their Creator, from their covenant God. Look at verse 6 with me again as we begin our first point this morning. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate as we move into the fall, we must remember that what Adam and Eve do here in verse 6 was not done in ignorance. Remember that in chapter 2, Adam had received the command directly from God. And in chapter 3, at the end of verse 3, it's very clear that Eve knows what's going to happen if she eats. She knows that if she eats, she is going to Die. We can see here the deceptiveness of sin. We can all relate to it in our own lives. We've all been where Eve is at here. We can understand how temptation can be so strong that it removes the consequences from our minds. We all know that struggle when the desire produced by temptation seems to override what we know and makes the consequences of sin seem to disappear. We can all understand how the temptation here causes Eve to think her own thoughts instead of thinking God's thoughts after him. Now after hearing the serpent, Eve now looks at this tree, and we can see here in verse 6 that instead of seeing what she ought to see, instead of looking at this tree and seeing sin and wickedness and covenant breaking, instead of looking at this tree and seeing death, instead of seeing those things, she's now looking at this tree and in the foolishness of her own wisdom, she sees it as good. I know what God said. I know that he said we can't eat from it, but look at it. It's good for food. It will nourish me. It's beautiful. It's nice to look at. It it will make me wise. You know what? All of those things were true. It did have fruit on it that was good for food and would nourish her. It was undoubtedly a beautiful tree. It was going to make her wise. Do you know what else is true? None of those things negate God's command. None of those things negate the consequences that were waiting on the other side of Eve eating from this tree. Now that Eve here in in the garden in the throes of temptation now that she is leaning on her own understanding. She is ignorantly assuming that the fact that this tree is good in these ways, she ignorantly assumes that this means that only good things are going to come when she eats. Dr. Lane Tipton says of this passage, The mistake Eve made in the garden that made sin inescapable was this, Eve decided to take God's words and treat them as one hypothesis, and to take Satan's words and to treat them as another hypothesis, and now she became the authority that would adjudicate between the two. In so doing, she made the ultimate legislature between good and evil the creature instead of the Creator. John Calvin said that in doing this, Eve measured everything by the yardstick of her own carnal stupidity. Beloved, beloved, let us learn from Eve. Let us learn that once we begin to doubt that God has said, sin becomes inevitable. Let us learn that once we doubt What God has said, not only does sin become inevitable, but no amount of rationalization in our own minds will undo that fact. Beloved, we must learn that while there are many things in this world that are good at bringing enjoyment, Many things in this world that will bring us pleasure, many things in this world that will meet our felt needs and desires. While this is true, if God has forbidden them of us, then we must learn from Eve and not be trapped by our own carnal stupidity. Beloved, we must learn to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and when the remaining corruptions of our flesh start talking to us. And when they start tempting us and that desire and that temptation starts to build up in us so much so that sin starts making sense, when that begins to happen, we must crucify our flesh. We must not sow to our flesh. We must not Feed our fleshly desires, but we must sow to the Spirit, for we have been instructed by God that to sow to the flesh is death. Sowing to the Spirit, however, means life and peace. As we talked about last week, we must not seek to hold the fire of sin and temptation close to our chest, for as the Puritan Thomas Watson said, he who will play with Satan's bait." Will quickly find himself taken by Satan's hook. Brothers and sisters, what is that temptation for you? What is that sin right now in your life that clings to you and that you cannot seem to overcome? And in what ways do you justify yourself in your mind by telling yourself that it's not that bad? It could be worse. I've got it under control. Beloved, I plead with you to kill it. I plead with you to do to that sin what Adam and Eve should have done to the serpent here in the garden. This first Adam should have guarded the garden and he should have crushed the serpent's head under his feet. Or he should have done what James commands us to do in James chapter 4 when he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And perhaps you've sought to do this, and yet that sin that you struggle with still clings to you and you've either just given in to it or are almost ready to do so because you can just not seem to get victory over it. Brothers and sisters, this is another half-truth of Satan. It is true that you cannot get victory over it. You cannot do it by yourself, but Jesus can. Beloved, your Savior can. Your Savior did, and no matter how many times that sin seems to get victory over you, you must flee to Christ. You must flee to your beloved. You must flee to Christ in prayer, pleading with him to not lead you into temptation, but to deliver you from evil. Plead with him and be honest with your Savior, and by faith, believe the words that he has spoken to you in his word. Brothers and sisters, we must do this because faith in God's promises is how God's people have always overcome, especially when things have seemed impossible to us. Beloved, believe his promise in John eight thirty six. if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Brothers and sisters, Satan is no longer your master. That sin that you hate and that seems so strong in your life, that sin is not a permanent fixture in your life. The only remaining purpose that Satan and sin has in your life is to drive pride out of you. Its only remaining purpose is to constantly beat self-reliance and self-righteousness out of you. Beloved, that sin's purpose in your life is to cause you to take your eyes off yourself, off your own power, and to lift your eyes to your Savior. Look to your Savior, beloved, and see Him with eyes of faith, always resisting temptation, always doing the Father's will. And then look to the cross and see Him suffering, for that sin that is clinging to you right now and it seems to be getting the victory over you. Look to the cross and see him bleed and get victory over it for you. See him pay its penalty. See him liberating you from its dominion. Oh, beloved, look to the cross and know that because your Savior set you free, you are free indeed Hear the Apostle Paul's words concerning this from Romans 6. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Beloved, that sin that clings so closely to you has no dominion over you. Draw near to God and Satan will flee From you. And this does not mean that that will be easy. This does not mean that this is one prayer and you can count it good. This does not mean that it is a one time action. But we know, beloved, that this is a daily action that we must, it is a daily labor that we must engage in. And we have been encouraged by the Apostle Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 4 as we engage in this burdensome labor. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient the things that are unseen are eternal. Beloved, that sin that clings to you and looms so large right now in your conscience, be encouraged by the word of God that it is wasting away day by day. The Puritan Samuel Bolton likens sin in the Christian to a strong man who daily drinks poison. Beloved, it may be strong now, but its strength in your life is drying up daily. Do not lose heart. Your Savior is holding you fast. That strong sin is growing weaker and weaker by the day, but your King is seeing to it that you are being renewed day by day. You are weak now, but you are like a weak man who is being nursed to strength. You are like a weak man who is being being given what he needs to be vigorous. And even if you can't currently perceive it, look to Christ and believe God's promises by faith. Beloved, be encouraged by Samuel Bolton's words when he's talking about this. He said, Sin rather dies than lives in you. Rejoice, beloved. Rejoice that the sin that is beating you down right now, it is dying in you because Christ lives in you. And because Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. As we go back to our passage now and think about Eve's sin here We can also see at the end of verse 6 that after hearing Satan's temptation, after considering the tree in the darkness of her own autonomous wisdom, we can see at the end of verse 6, she took of its fruit and ate. We can also see here at the end of verse 6 that she compounds her sin in the fact that She also gave some to her husband. Eve wanted company in her sin. She wanted her husband to follow her. She wanted her husband to be wise with her. And this is where we find out in verse 6 that Adam has been present with Eve while all of this has been taking place. We can see it at the end of verse 6 when it says, She also gave some to her husband. Who was with her? And he ate. Adam stood idly by while all of this was happening. Nowhere in these six verses has Adam been doing what God commissioned and commanded him to do. And what's worse than this is that we learn in the New Testament that while Eve was deceived by this serpent, Adam is not. First Timothy 2 says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Adam has his eyes wide open. Adam knows what God commanded him. He knows what is coming if Eve eats. And not only does he sit by and watch her eat, but knowing what has just happened when this bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh turns and offers the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to him, He eats himself. Adam was not deceived by what was going on here, but he eats anyway. What a colossal failure, beloved. It is important for us to see here that Adam's sin was not one of ignorance, Adam's sin was not one that was the woman's fault. He willfully decided to disobey the direct words of God to him. Adam failed in every sphere that he could fail in as our covenant head. He failed in the religious and civil sphere of government. He failed to keep the temple holy. He failed to execute justice on this sinful creature who strove against God. He failed in his responsibilities in family government. He did not seek to protect his wife or to lead his wife in not eating. And he failed in his own personal government. He ate himself. What a momentous verse of Scripture, beloved. This is where sin entered the human race, this is where death entered the world. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, is the line of demarcation. This is the line between light and darkness, good and evil, eternal life and eternal death. Hell will be filled because of Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. All of the misery and all the carnage that is going to follow in the Bible, all the misery and carnage that follows in the world, all the misery and carnage that we look around the world and see, it all flows and finds its root in this one sin. All of it finds its foundation here in the garden, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death Through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Before moving on to our final point this morning, I want to make a brief application to my brothers in Christ here. Brothers, take note of the results that follow from being a passive man. Brothers, we were created by God to lead. We are to lead in our personal lives and not just coast through our life like water following the path of least resistance. Young men, if you're constantly distracted by your phones and if you are not disciplining yourself, if you are not preparing yourself now to lead a family in the future, If a young woman looking good is more important to you than her being godly, then you are laying the groundwork for many troubles and struggles in the future. I know perhaps you think you're too young and that you've got plenty of time. After all, you're not getting married anytime soon, and this is a half-truth. It's a lie of Satan. Satan. It is true that you are too young and that you're not getting married anytime soon, but what you don't realize is that while you are not laboring, while you are not preparing for that, Satan is. He is working. If you're not thinking in these ways, young men, let me assure you that you are playing checkers while Satan is playing chess. And for my brothers who are married... We have been called and commanded to lead in our homes. Just look at this passage and consider the results of a husband sitting idly by as he watches his wife disobey God. He's got nothing to say. And let's be honest, brothers, we know that this can be a struggle in our own lives because we don't want to deal with the fallout. We don't want to deal with the argument that's going to come during those times when we ought to correct our wives in a particular area. But we have been called to lead, brothers. Now, with that being said, because we too, as men, can sinfully abuse our responsibilities in this area, I must take a moment to make it crystal clear, brothers, that this certainly does not mean that you can correct your wife in a physical way. Physical abuse, verbal abuse, physical or verbal intimidation is not an option, brothers. We must lead our wives, we must lead our families in word, we must lead them in deed, and we must lead them by pleading with our Lord, our King, to give our wives desires to follow us in serving Christ together. Which begs the question, brothers is this how we're leading? Are we leading our wives to help us serve Christ? Or do we just want them to submit to us and our desires? Are we pointing our fingers at them in frustration saying, Paul says, submit to your husband in all things as unto Christ. It's right there in black and white. All the while not being willing to lay down our lives for them being unwilling to do what Christ did for his bride. Brothers, are you seeking to love and to lead your wives? As you do so, brothers, there is never an excuse for physical or verbal abuse of your bride. If she will not follow you as your lead or as her lead, as her head, if she will not submit to you when you correct her then you must continue to be an example, you must continue to love her, you must continue to lead her in word and in deed, you must continue to labor in prayers on her behalf, and then you must leave her actions, her response to that leadership to your king. And dear sisters, as you are hearing this exhortation to the men, you must also take note of the fact from our passage that a passive father, young ladies, or a passive husband, dear sisters, does not relieve you of your own responsibilities before God. We can see it in our passage, and as you continue to read, you can see that Adam's failure to lead which is true. Adam's failure to protect his wife, all of which is true, is not going to be an excuse for her. She is still going to die. Beloved, let us learn that each of us will give an account to God for our own lives. And on that day, turning to God and saying, well, this person did this, and that person did that, and they didn't do this, will be No excuse for us. We stand and fall before the Lord as individuals. And we labor together to help each other be able to stand and fall before the Lord with a clear conscience on that last day. Let us learn these lessons, beloved. Let's move on now to our last point and look at Adam and Eve's reaction after they had sinned. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me again. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. As we look at these last two verses, we can see that the immediate consequence of Adam and Eve's sin is a loss of innocence. Satan had promised that their eyes would be opened in verse 5, and here we see that indeed they were. But it was not what Satan had promised. It was not that tasty bait on the hook. It was not the positive result that he said, the pleasure that he promised was going to come. In quite a bit of sad and tragic irony, if you're familiar with the story of Ravi Zacharias, it was him who said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin had cost the man and his wife more than they could have ever anticipated. Verse 7 here in our passage is a direct contrast to what we looked at two weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 25, where it says there, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Moses is making an intentional connection here in verse 7 of our passage today. He's contrasting to what he wrote in chapter 2. And the obvious point is that before sin, Adam and his wife were naked and they weren't ashamed. But after sin, they were naked and they were now ashamed of it. Now that Adam and Eve know evil by experience, they know that they are naked and that they are exposed before their creator. They know that they have been exposed to death. Now their eyes are wide open. And now that they are, we can see in our passage as they proceed to do two things. First of all, we can see in verse 7 that they seek to cover their nakedness and exposure before God. Adam and Eve had lost their original righteousness and they sought to clothe themselves with fig leaves. In a way, you could see this as the first act of deluded self-righteousness as though these fig leaves were going to cover up themselves from God and their new experiential knowledge of sin. But just like the self-delusion of self-righteousness, we know something about these fig leaves. We know that just like self-righteousness, these fig leaves are going to fail. It won't be long. They're going to turn brown. They're going to turn brittle. They're going to wither, and they're going to die. And like self-righteousness, there is going to be a constant need for Adam and Eve to cut down more and more fig leaves and cover themselves when their previous attempts at self-righteousness turn to dust. A sacrifice of their own making will never be able to blot out their sin. It will never be able to atone for their sin here at the tree. Like the sacrifices in Israel that only cleanse the flesh, There will need to be a constant cutting of fig leaves for them to cover their nakedness. But we also see that Adam and Eve do something else after they sin. Adam and Eve, in their self-righteousness, instead of going to God, hide themselves from Him. Notice here in verse 8, it uses God's covenant name Yahweh twice in this passage or in this verse. Adam and Eve hear the sound of their covenant God and after seeking to hide their nakedness through their own ingenuity, they hid themselves from their covenant God. In their fallen and miserable condition, Adam and Eve know that they need to seek refuge. They know instinctively that they need to hide from a holy God. They know that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. They are afraid of the consequences of sinning against God and breaking covenant with Him. They are afraid that God is bringing death to them. And notice in verse 8 where they try to hide. They try to hide among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve sinned in the middle of the garden, in the midst of the garden where the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. And once they did, they sought to leave the middle of the garden and go hide themselves among the trees of the garden where God had given them all the liberty they wanted. It's like when you tell your kid that they can't have that dessert in the refrigerator. And you leave and you go do your business, but they go sneaking around in the kitchen. They go caressing the refrigerator door thinking how tasty that's going to be. And they open it up. What do they do as soon as they hear the sound of their parents' footsteps coming in the house? They slam the refrigerator door closed and they storm out of the kitchen, but what they are doing is they are seeking to go somewhere else in the house where they know they have liberty to be. And that's what Adam and Eve did here In our passage this morning, and this pattern of sinners seeking to hide from the wages of sin and the curse of God has been the pattern of mankind ever since our passage this morning here in the garden. Hear these words from the prophet Hosea who uses the garden language when he speaks to the covenant-breaking Israel and says, The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorns and thistles shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. And hear from the Apostle John in Revelation 6 about the reaction of those who refuse the pardon offered by God in the last days. He says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Beloved, since the fall of mankind, it has always been the instinct of sinful man under the dominion of sin slaves to the serpent. It has always been their instinct to seek out their own devices for covering up their own sin and to hide from their creator. Beloved, we must notice here that true liberty, true liberty is found in obedience. True liberty is found in obeying God while Adam and Eve obeyed God, they had all the liberty they could possibly want in the garden. They had liberty of knowledge that allowed them to be naked together and unashamed. They had liberty to partake from all of the trees except for one. They had liberty to enjoy God in the cool of the day when he would commune with them. They had liberty to live in the garden. They had liberty to look forward to the day when they would pass their probation and get to eat from that other tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of life. But as soon as they sinned, all of their liberty disappeared. Now, instead of liberty, they had bondage. Now, instead of access, they had exile. They were bound now in their knowledge of their nakedness. They covered themselves in their shame. They were cut off from access to the tree of life. They're going to be removed from this garden. They're going to be removed from communing with God in the cool of the day. They are now in bondage to Satan, slaves of sin. Serpent that they should have exercised dominion over now has dominion over them. Beloved, sin still seeks to follow the same pattern in our own lives. Sin is desirable for pleasure. Let us not deceive ourselves and pretend like it is not so. Sin does feel good to our flesh, no doubt about it. Sin is also desirable to make us feel wise, especially in our own day. It is desirable to make us feel intelligent with the rest of the world, make us feel respected by the world, to make us feel like we're on the right side of history. But beloved, we know better. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We know that while sin makes promises of pleasure in this fleeting life, we know that on the other side of that half-truth, we know on the other side of that coin is an eternity of torment that sin deceptively hides from our minds. Beloved, we know that sin in the end always promises more than it gives and it always takes more than we expect Sin always brings shame, embarrassment. Sin always causes us to seek to hide from each other as well as futile attempts to hide from our God. I read somewhere about the hierarchy that was present here in the garden and how the fall, in the fall, the created order gets turned on its head. In the fall, the woman listens to the serpent, the man listens to the woman, and no one listens to God. What a miserable condition. The first Adam, our covenant head, thrust himself and all of us into here in the Garden of Eden. And let us also remember that Israel, reading and hearing this for the first time, they were being instructed as to the reasons for their slavery in in Egypt. They were being instructed as to the reasons for why they were redeemed from that slavery. And they were also being instructed as to what covenant disobedience would mean for them in the future. So as we prepare to close this morning, here we have it. In the garden, the sinless Son of God failing. As we close, beloved, I want to point our thoughts on this Lord's Day to our Savior. I want us to leave seeing the beauty of Scripture and the beauty of that sinless Son of God that succeeded where all his predecessors failed. Turn in your Bibles real quickly to Luke chapter 3. As you're turning to Luke chapter 3, I want you to think about what has happened here in the Garden of Eden as we've been going through it. Adam, a man made in the image of God, given the breath of life, and as you're turning to Luke chapter 3, realize that in the Bible this idea of the breath and wind are often associated with the Holy Spirit. So here in the garden we have Adam being given the breath of life and almost immediately he is tempted by the serpent. As you look at Luke chapter 3, I want to give you something to meditate on this Lord's Day. I want you to see the parallels between the temptations of the first and the last Adam that were shown to me by Dr. Lane Tipton. In Luke chapter 3, look at verses 21 and 22, and you will see that this section is Luke's account of Jesus' baptism. And at Jesus' baptism, you can see that he receives the Holy Spirit as it descends upon him, and then you hear the Father speak to him in verse 22. You are my beloved son. And immediately after this, Luke does something that seems strange. Right after the account of Jesus' baptism, Luke gives us a genealogy, a genealogy that runs from Jesus. But notice how he ends this genealogy in verse 38. Luke runs this genealogy all the way from Jesus to Adam. You can see it in verse 38, the son of Adam What does he follow that with? The Son of God. Luke is clearly wanting to draw our attention to parallels between the first and the last Adam. Now turn over to the next chapter, Luke chapter 4, and you can see that immediately, following Jesus' baptism, what happens? Jesus is immediately led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to do what? This last Adam the sinless son of God, led into the wilderness to be tempted by that ancient serpent, Satan, for 40 days. Now, we know that Jesus ate nothing during these 40 days, and we can see that Satan's temptation with the last Adam begins the exact same way that it began with the first Adam. Satan's temptation begins by asking Jesus, has God actually said? Now you don't see those exact words in Luke 4, but look in chapter 4 verse 3 and remember that God had just declared at Jesus' baptism, you are my beloved son. And look at verse 3 and see Satan's first words of temptation to the last Adam begin with the words, if you are the son of God. As God actually said, Satan's first temptation is to subtly attack what God had just declared to his beloved son. And then in a striking parallel, Satan's first temptation of Jesus is the temptation to eat. Beloved, in two weeks, we are going to see a promise concerning a seed of the woman that is going to crush the skull of the serpent. And here in Luke 4, we see the sinless son of God, the last Adam, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we, beloved, we can see here in Luke 4 that he overcame. He did not fail. He did not sin when he was tempted. Beloved, that is your hope. Beloved, our hope is that our Savior, our King, our Lord Jesus Christ overcame And instead of us having to seek to clothe ourselves with our own self-righteousness, we go to Him and have Him clothe us with His righteousness. Instead of seeking to hide from our covenant God, Jesus Christ is our refuge and our strength. We are hid in Christ. Beloved, He is the great overcomer, and we, having been united to Him by faith, having been clothed in His righteousness, Beloved, we do not need to hide from our God. Listen to the author of the epistle to the Hebrews who says, we who have fled for refuge have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain." where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. O beloved, do not seek to hide from your God when you are in the throes of temptation and sin. Flee to your refuge, your strength, Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that it is not sectioned off and medically sealed, vacuum packaged apart from each other, but it is an organic whole, and that scarlet thread of our Savior runs throughout. Father, we thank you that we can see the beauty of such things that you have taught us in your word. We thank you that when we see these things and we plead with you that you would help us to understand that no prophecy of Scripture has come about by the will of man. Men were carried along by your Holy Spirit so we can trust that these things are true. We can hope in these things in this life and we can stake our eternities on it. Oh, Father, teach us as we have looked at the fall of Adam and Eve here in our passage this morning, as we've looked at their initial reactions to that fall. Help us to learn from them, God, to not seek to cover ourselves, to confess our sins, trusting your promises. You have promised that any and everyone who confesses their sins and looks to Christ in faith has an advocate with you, has forgiveness and pardon of those sins. Father, help us not to be a people that seeks to justify ourselves or sweeps sin under the rug, but help us to be a people that confesses our sins to one another, seeks to hold each other accountable, seeks to strive after growing in holiness and in Christ-likeness, seeking to, leave, to live as people who have been set free by our Savior, set free to live holy lives, lives pleasing to you. Father, help us to see this as true liberty, what you have set us free for, and help us to be ambassadors in this world for our neighbors, for our family members, for our friends who are still in bondage. Help us to shine the light of freedom that comes through Jesus Christ into their lives, and we plead for your mercy on their behalf. And Father, for those among us this morning who have heard these things and yet refuse to receive pardon, who yet continue in their unbelief, Father, we thank you that when it comes to salvation, you have not given fallen man the last word. We thank you that you are a mighty Savior who can take out hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh, a, a mighty Savior who can give ears to hear and who can give eyes to see and who can give hearts to obey. And, Father, we ask, we plead with you to do that this morning among the lost who are with us. And We plead with you to use our lives in this world as ambassadors, making your appeal to the world to be reconciled to you before that great day of your wrath when sinful man, moving along his merry way, ignorant of what is to come, has to stand before you without an advocate. to stand before you in his own self-deluded self-righteousness and learn for eternity that his righteousness was his filthy rags and that all his striving availed him nothing. Oh, Father, we plead for your mercy on, on their behalf on this side of eternity. And Lord, for us, your people, Help us, help us to be thankful, joyful for what your son has procured for us. Thankful that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Father, help us to constantly have before our minds that though we are not under law, we are under grace, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means, God, you have set us free that we might live a life worthy of the gospel to which you have called us to. Help us, Father, as your people, to strive after holiness, to strive daily after new obedience, to strive daily even in our own weakness to put to death Those sins that cling to us. Help us to strive not only for ourselves, but for one another. Help us, Father, to bear one another's burdens. And help us, Father, to not strive after man made formulas and programs that can produce just the right results, but help us to strive after the ordinary means of grace. Trusting that the ordinary reading and hearing and preaching of your word is producing an eternal weight of glory in us. Help us to trust that it is nourishing us and causing us to grow in strength and causing us to gain more and more victory over that sin Help us to trust that our songs to you are sacrifices of worship that are pleasing to you as we bring them to you in your son's name and that you receive our frail offerings and in response, you nourish us by your spirit. You strengthen us. Help us to see your table that we partake of every month. Help us to see it as a spiritual nourishment to our souls. Oh, Father, help us to see these ordinary means of grace. Help us to see those prayers that we offer up to you when we feel like they are just hitting the ceiling and that no one's hearing them. Help us to realize that you receive them as we offer them in your Son's name. Help us, Father, to be a people of faith that believe in your promises, and that seek to live according to them. Help us to trust that in doing those simple things, that you will seek and save the lost through us, and that you will disciple those that you save through us. Father, help us to not lean on our own understanding, but to trust in you with all of our heart, acknowledge you in all of our ways, and believe by faith that though it is foolishness to the world, that you will make our path straight, that you will be proven right in the end, that wisdom will be, be will be proven by her children. Oh, Father, help us in all these ways as we reflect on your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen.